Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. My guest today is the CEO of Soul Pancake, Shabnam Mogadabi. You're going to hear how wise she is through a story I'm going to excerpt for you in a moment. The story was relevant to me because a little while back, someone I knew pretty well was laid off from a company that she really liked to work at. This person worked really hard, was very competent, and could be depended upon to keep all the trains running on time. But she got laid off. Hey, it happens. She wasn't the only person who got laid off, and it wasn't personal. But the thing that stood out to me is the way it went down. With her being escorted out of the office by security, as if she'd been fired for cause, as if she'd done something wrong, couldn't be trusted. I just can't understand why companies would do that to people who've been highly competent and very loyal. Now, earlier in her career at a previous company, Shabnam was forced to perform a mass layoff one by one. When I asked her about it, she told me this story. So here's the thing. Uh, I'll be honest. I uh, The first few folks that I laid off, I did in person. And then I saw the way the company handled it. Um, they basically, I, once I had the meeting with them, they showed up with a box and told them to pack up their box and they had to leave. And oh, I'm like, they're not being fired. They're being man. laid off. And I was so distraught by the way that the company handled it that all the subsequent layoffs, so after the first three, all the subsequent layoffs, I basically called them the day before and I said, don't come in tomorrow. Don't come in tomorrow. This is what's happening. I'm so sorry, um, but I don't. I don't want you to be humiliated in that way because that's not what you deserve. You're an amazing employee, and if I could keep you, I would. This is not about your performance. And I'm here if you want a recommendation. We'll send you all your stuff. We'll send you all your paperwork. But I couldn't. I was not happy with the way HR handled it, and so I. Um, I took it on myself to that's to do beautiful. it in a different way. You know, I've I've heard of situations like that. In fact, I know somebody who yeah. who was was treated that way, and it's shocking to me. It's shocking because they're not being fired. They didn't perform badly. They didn't misbehave. They haven't done anything wrong. They literally are just beholden to the economics of the company. And so I tried to make it super fair. I basically did a last in, first out model because I didn't want it to be based on my biases. I didn't want it to be based on perceived performance of one person versus another. I literally tried to make it as fair as possible. I was told you have to cut a third of your team. And so I just did last in, first out. Did it make you feel good the way you ultimately decided to handle it? I mean, at the time I was going home eating pints of ice cream every night because I was oh, so man. miserable about the situation. So at the time I was like, this is the worst. Um, but I mean, I mean now- now, I mean, I definitely don't have any regrets about it. I mean, I, I wish I could have done that for the first few people that we laid off. When I heard that story, I thought, that's great. That's the way I'd like to think if I'd been in that situation. Made me want to learn a lot more from her. The company Shabnam runs, Soul Pancake, is a media and production outfit started by Rain Wilson, the actor who came to fame as Dwight Schrute, on the show, The Office. Its motto is, we make stuff that matters. A few years ago, Soul Pancake was named one of Fast Company's 10 most innovative companies in video, and it ranked on a list of Inc. 500's fastest growing private companies in America. Over the past few years, the company has created many memorable pieces of branded content, and done some brilliant storytelling. You might remember Kid President. And if you haven't seen the compelling piece about Zach Zobiak's song, Clouds, I urge you to check it out. You'll find it on YouTube under My Last Days. It'll move you whether you watch it today or 25 years from now. Guaranteed. Soul Pancake has evolved and so has Shabnam's job. This entire conversation is a great way for anybody to think about stepping forward. And speaking of moving ahead, 
I encourage you to check out my sponsors. We got ZipRecruiter, which has reinvented the art of hiring. You need to hire? Go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, type in the job description, and with a single click of your computer, you'll have qualified candidates in 24 hours and a free trial. And Squarespace, which will enable you to reimagine everything you can do with a website. So go to squarespace.com to see how unique and beautiful your website can be. I hope this podcast will inspire your creativity. So let's get straight to Shabnam Mogadabi. Usually I start by saying, welcome to big questions. But here's the thing. You, I was watching you on YouTube videos and part of the essence of this company is chew on big questions. And I said, what, hold it. She, She stole our name. And then I said, oh no, we're new. It was her idea first. Then I said, don't blame me. It was Kevin, the manager, who came up with it. <laughs> so I'm directing the lawsuit to Kevin, the manager. Got it. Okay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, it just means we got a love of big questions in common. That's right. Well, the big questions are important. And we both start out as journalists. Oh, did you start out as a journalist? I started I out as a journalist. I was at Esquire for 20 years. Oh, amazing. Interviewing all the icons in the world. And... What's I really would love to talk about is how journalism, storytelling, and business come together. <laughs> the intersection of it all. Yeah, uh, because I'm noticing, having been a journalist and now starting a new business, there are a lot of things that work for me, but there are a lot of things that are from the old days that are Mm -hmm. holding me back. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to know how you've got to this forest in Denmark where we're now sitting. uh, Just to give you a little visual here, Shabnam is in her office and right behind her is some amazing wallpaper. The sun is coming through this birch forest in Denmark. And it's a lovely vantage point, except she doesn't get to see it because it's behind her. But we <laughs> it get frames to me, but uh, but brings joy to everyone else. <laughs> there you go. Let's start with your name, because sure. Shabnam. Shabnam Murarabi. Oh, see, I'm glad I didn't say it because I wouldn't have gotten the last <laughs> name with the right pronunciation, the right emphasis on the right syllable, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now, in some places. I'm guessing that may be common, though to me it sounds exotic. <laughs> well, Shabnam is a Persian name. It's also super common in Hindi. So uh, it's all kind of from the Sanskrit origins, but it means the same thing actually in Farsi and in, in Hindi. So uh, it means morning dew. My mom was very poetic when she picked it. <laughs> okay. Does it a name like that bring a sense of joy to your life? I actually think my name is the polar opposite of me because I'm definitely more of a night owl than I am a morning person, but my name is Morning Dew, so go figure. All right. (laughs) Okay, and we're in the offices. Okay, you want to say something? No, but I was going to say, but it is a very poetic name, um, and I think that I'm drawn to art, and I'm drawn to storytelling, and I do think that's that's reflective of who I am. And we're sitting in the office of Soul Pancake, which is a very unusual name. It's a great name. That's poetic. (laughs) How did that come about? How did the name come about? We get asked this question a lot. It's actually a really funny story. So when uh, Rain kind of was first, Rain Wilson, our founder, uh, was essentially first kind of coming up with this idea of a place where people could chew on life's big questions and figure out what it means to be human. We knew that we loved that idea, chewing on life's big questions, but we didn't have a name. And so we wanted to get a name that had a part 
food item to fit the chewing and part a kind of big profound uh, word to fit the life's big questions. So we threw out a bunch of combinations, soul pancake, caramel waffle, spirit taco, (laughs) metaphysical milkshake, (laughs) literally every combination you could come up with. And then we searched for the domains. And guess what? Spirittaco.com is a food truck somewhere, um, maybe in Austin, but it exists. So we went with soulpancake.com because everyone could spell it and it was available. And so that's how we got the name. Perfect. Okay. (laughs) So let's see how the two intersect. When you were a kid, was there a moment you knew you loved to tell stories? I loved to write as a kid. I had books and books of journals next to my bed growing up. Every time that I wanted to have a serious conversation with mom and dad, I would write them a four-page letter about it rather than talking to them. So I always liked to write and I always liked to communicate through writing and telling the story of what had happened in write, written form. And Can so, you give an example? Like what would a four-page letter to your parents be? <laughs> so one time my sister got a pair of shoes that I had wanted and my dad got it for her for her birthday because they have the same birthday in the same month. And so she got this pair of shoes and I had been wanting those shoes. And I told my mom, but I hadn't told my dad. So I wrote this long, I was maybe 11 years old. So I literally wrote this four page letter to my dad articulating the uh, sequence and the chronology of my requests for the shoes and how I felt very hurt that the shoes were given to my sister and not to me. So I have a, a long history of writing out my, did you, did anybody uh, my keep formal it? complaints. And I think I, my dad actually has still, has like some of my letters still. And literally that one says at the top of it, dear dad, this is a formal complaint that I am filing. <laughs> oh, I'm like 11 <laughs> years old. You gotta love it. So. Okay. So you know that you like to express yourself through writing, mm-hmm. but writing and storytelling can be a little different. What, yeah. What was the moment that you knew you loved stories? Well, that also was when I was a kid. So I'm uh, the oldest of eight grandkids, and I was often put in charge of all the kids. Like summers would come around, and it would be me and all the youngins. And when you have to entertain a lot of kids and you don't have a ton of video games and games and things like that, you use your imagination. So we would, I would essentially uh, take fairy tales like Three Little Pigs and Goldilocks, and I'd merge them, and I'd give everyone roles, and we would practice a play so that when our parents came home, we would perform this play and we'd find props from like our bed sheets and our toys. And my youngest siblings would never follow the rules. And I'd be like yelling in the corner, like, no, don't stand there. You're supposed to go hug her. And it was always awkwardly bad, but it really just, I enjoyed bringing together a group of people to entertain and to hopefully, you know, um, kind of unite us. And so I think that along with loving to write, just, it put me on a path, man, put me on the path. And where did the path take you? (laughs) Well, the path took me to journalism school where, um, you know, ultimately I kind of decided I wanted to tell stories, but I wanted to tell stories that would impact the world in some way, change the world in some way. And so I thought journalism was a very natural way to do that. that Where'd you go to school? I got my undergraduate degree at USC and I did a grad program at Northwestern. So really good journalism schools. I wanted to kind of learn the art and the business of journalism. So my undergrad was in actual journalism, the art of journalism. And by my grad school degree, my master's was actually in media management. So it was about the balance of kind of uh, the business and the journalism side. And so that was really where I honed in a little bit on what I really like to do, which was not something that I'd ever thought of. I never thought business was something that would be interesting to me. But now that I run a business, I love it. So who knew? Is You are really a step ahead of a lot of people because a lot of those who go into journalism uh, tend to be focused on the actual writing or the interviewing or the filming. But to have that other side that early must have given you a nice balance. Well, part of it was I always knew I wanted to start my own business. And I always imagined that I'd start my own magazine, um, uh, my own media company. And my grad school thesis was literally about the fact that I was going to launch a media company um, 
basically I'm going to get super academic on you. Uh, but I, my thesis was about the fact that, you know, back in the days of Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, they essentially were the ones that defined what a good society is. They reflected on the state of man and they were the ones who decided what made, what laws we should follow, how we should build our societies. And I thought, well, when the industrial revolution happened, that really shifted. And it was titans of industry and politicians and celebrities, they started to set what is a good society and what are our standards. And we almost lost the value of spiritual and philosophical thinkers. So I said, what if, you know, my thesis was that media needed to have a platform, a space, a place where people could tackle spiritual and philosophical ideas, but in a cool and relevant way, and that we were missing that as a kind of media industry. So that was my, that was my thesis in, in grad school. How do you go to work for People Magazine thinking that way. <laughs> I actually worked for People Magazine before I wrote the, the grad oh, school thesis. So oh, okay. what's funny about People is I started in their research department. So I was essentially an assistant in their research department. And then they started sending me out as a stringer on assignments. And I was doing it and I felt a little bit soul-sucking because I, at one point, stalked Lindsay Lohan into a bathroom at a club. I mean, I have crazy stories from that time. Um, but I was doing it because I really wanted to work on the human interest side of people. I really wanted to tell the stories of ordinary people who had done extraordinary things. And that was kind of the mix that people had at the time. And unfortunately, after a couple years of working there, they had a new team come on that basically said, okay, we're going to focus more on the celebrities, the extraordinary people doing ordinary things and less on that human interest side. And so, um, you know, that, that, that very common heroes amongst us pieces in, in, he, in people, I loved those. And I wanted to tell those stories. And uh, there just wasn't space for that if I stayed at people anymore. So I, that's why I left. But I actually really enjoyed the time there. And there, they were, it's a really, truly wonderful um, magazine and has amazing caliber writers and journalists working for it. So I was super proud and honored to work there, but it just wasn't right for what I wanted to do. What was going through you when you were stalking Lindsay Lohan in the bathroom at a club? What the hell am I doing here? <laughs> that was going through my head. And also, I have to get the quote because that was my job. <laughs> so so just to get one quote... Yeah, so it was a club opening, and so I was one of the stringers on the line, um, essentially. And so usually at openings, premieres, et cetera, the publicists come through first, and they're like, who are you with, who are you with, who are you with? And you kind of say who you're with, and I was with people, so I would always get five minutes. I mean, literally, there was never a time that I was told you're not going to get five minutes, but I was always given five minutes. And the one person that was on the invite list for the club opening that my editor had told me make sure you get a quote, was Lindsay Lohan. And of course, everyone comes through and Lindsay Lohan's the only one who doesn't come down the carpet for the opening. So afterwards, I was talking to some of the folks who were outside and the um, the other reporters, and um, they basically said, she's inside. She just didn't come through the kind of entrance. She's actually in the club. So then I'm like, I got, I got to get the quote. So I went into the club and I was like looking for her. I couldn't find her, couldn't find her. And then finally I see her and she's literally headed into the bathroom. So I basically stalked her into the bathroom. She was very wasted. And, oh, no. yep, and I tried, I tried to get a quote from her and I couldn't, I didn't get even English sentences out of her. Like she was talking gibberish. So I basically walked away without a quote and... Now, yeah. what, what it goes to your wow, mind? Wow, these are some stories you're pulling out yeah. of me from back in the day. These are like OG stories that have nothing to do with Sylvain Cake. Well, but you know what? They, <laughs> they, they do, actually. If, if, I'm listening. Okay. And I'm thinking, like, a story like that <laughs> would take me back to Socrates. <laughs> it would That's make me think, what am, I, what am I doing here? Yeah. What's... Is my purpose to be invading bathrooms and yeah. getting people who are a little wasted to say something and, and run back with a quote? Yeah. So was there like a, a moment where you knew, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do something more here? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was super, super, I, I'm, I'm ambitious. 
let's just say it as it is, I'm ambitious. And so when I was, you know, 22 and I'm like running around trying to be a stringer for people, my aspiration was to work on the human interest side. So I was willing, I was willing to do whatever it takes to prove that I was going to be a great reporter and a great stringer so that they would give me the chance to work on the side of the magazine that I wanted. When I had the moment of what am I doing here, it was really um, when they changed the strategy of the magazine to be more celebrity focused and decrease. Well, just just more about the extraordinary people doing ordinary things um, and just have fewer pages committed to the ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And as a result, those jobs were less likely to come about. And I said, how long do I want to be doing this other thing to try to get this piece of what I'm aspiring to do? And I just decided I had been I had been there for two years. I had been doing the stringer, stringer stuff for about nine months. And I was just like, I'm, I'm kind of done with this. I need to kind of reset. And that was actually when I went to grad school. So that was when I decided, okay, I know I've, I've always wanted to start my own company. Uh, maybe I should go back to school and focus on the management side and the and the business side of media so that I understand how to start a business because I didn't know anything about how to start a business. And so I did that. Didn't teach me anything about how to start a business, but, uh, but it was helpful in that it kind of focused in that I actually did enjoy thinking about the strategy of media as much as actually creating media. Okay. So you come out of Northwestern. That mm-hmm. was where you got the graduate degree. Yes. And what are you thinking then? So uh, first of all, I was in Chicago and I got a couple job offers there, but it was too cold. Um, I couldn't do it. I could not handle the winters uh, in Chicago. So I hightailed it out of there. Um, Worked for uh, a small company, B2B uh, media company in LA for a couple years, very quickly got promoted and they sent me out to Washington, DC. The company was acquired. I got sent out to Washington, DC to the the parent company headquarters and started working uh, as a kind of managing editor on some magazines there and eventually became editor in chief of a group of publications for that company. Again, all B2B in the real estate land design development space. Um, and I, so I had been kind of working working in journalism for about six, seven years. Um, And that was when I heard Rain Wilson doing this NPR interview that kind of changed the course of my my trajectory. So you're listening to this interview. What are you hearing? So this actor who I didn't know uh, from the office comes on this NPR interview and he's doing this interview and he's talking and I'm driving in DC. And uh, he basically starts talking about this platform he's going to launch um, called Soul Pancake. And he is going to basically make spiritual and philosophical topics cool again. And I had this very visceral, oh my God, that's right. me. I wrote my thesis on this. Rain <laughs> Wilson just stole my idea, right? So I, I very much so had a visceral reaction to it and uh, probably wallowed for a few weeks about the celebrity who was able to like manifest my idea um, and then decided, I just, I don't know, I just found some crazy resolve in me to find a way to be a part of it. Um, so I just started bombarding uh, people I knew in LA. So writing emails, calling, like bugging people, bugging. I probably sent a hundred emails and phone calls to people like just trying to find a connection and eventually someone put me in touch with someone who put me in touch with someone and I got in touch with Rain's business partner so get on the phone with him and we had a couple conversations and he was like I really like what you do and your content and storytelling and I was like that's what I do and I'd love to be able to help you guys and he said listen so here's the thing we launched the website in about three weeks we've got like a, a launch date that we've got set up we've got great technology we've got all these bells and whistles we don't really have any content yet and I'm like, you launch in three weeks? What? <laughs> so, uh, so basically, I just said, you know, give me equity, and I'll and I'll build this. I'll help you guys build this. And so I called in every favor to writer friends, freelancers, graphic designers, photographers. Like I just called in all the favors, and I mapped out kind of what the content lineup was going to be, how we were going to internally create content, the group of random friends and family that they had assembled is like, maybe these people can help write stuff. I organize them into what they can produce. So um, basically got the content off the ground. So I basically didn't sleep for three weeks until we launched. Does leadership start with calling in favors? Does leadership start with calling in favors? I mean, here you are, you just get in charge. Well, I think I learned a lot of leadership skills. I, I, um, 
In running the magazines on the West Coast, I definitely, um, it wasn't a great period of time because I was in the housing space and this was leading up to 2008 when the crash happened. I laid off seven, eight people in the course of a few weeks. I had a team of, you know, 30 people and we like basically cut by a third. And so I had to lay off a bunch of people. I had to still manage to the, like still manage the number of events and publications, but at a significantly reduced budget because our revenue was slashed so significantly. So it was a very trying time. Um, And I think that that's where I actually learned leadership, but I think opportunity sometimes can come from, from calling in favors. I think leadership does have to be learned, does have to be cultivated. I think you do need people who believe in you and will mentor you. You need experiences that you have that push you and and help you figure out how to communicate, how to, you know, uh, get people excited about something despite the challenges. All of those things, I think, are things you have to learn as a leader. But then I do think that opportunity can sometimes come from calling in a favor. This is going to be a, a strange question. Okay. <laughs> but- I'm just wondering, as a female as a female boss, is it different laying off a man as opposed to a woman? Uh, I have never been asked that question before in my uh, life. I- <laughs> um, so here's the thing. Uh, I'll be honest. I uh, the first few folks that I laid off, I did in person, and then I saw the way the company handled it. Um, they basically. Once I had the meeting with them, they showed up with a box and told them to pack up their box and they had to leave. And I'm like, they're not being fired. They're being laid off. And I was so distraught by the way that the company handled it that all the subsequent layoffs. So after the first three, all the subsequent layoffs, I basically called them the day before and I said, don't come in tomorrow. Don't come in tomorrow. This is what's happening. I'm so sorry. Um, But I don't. I don't want you to be humiliated in that way because that's not what you deserve. You're an amazing employee. And if I could keep you, I would. This is not about your performance. And I'm here if you want a recommendation. We'll send you all your stuff. We'll send you all your paperwork. But I couldn't, I was not happy with the way HR handled it. And so I um, I took it on myself to, that's to do beautiful. it in a different way. You know, I've I've heard of situations like that. In fact, I know somebody who yeah. who was was treated that way, and it's shocking to me. It's shocking because they're not being fired. They didn't perform badly. They didn't misbehave. They haven't done anything wrong. They literally are just beholden to the economics of the company. And so I tried to make it super fair. I basically did a last in first out model because I didn't want it to be based on my biases. I didn't want it to be based on perceived performance of one person versus another. I literally tried to make it as fair as possible. I was told you have to cut a third of your team. And so I just did last in, first out. Did it make you feel good the way you ultimately decided to handle it? I mean, at the time I was going home eating pints of ice cream every night because I was so miserable about the situation. So at the time I was like, this is the worst. Um, But I mean, now- now, I mean, I definitely don't have any regrets about it. I mean, I, I wish I could have done that for the first few people that we laid off. Yeah, that when, I, when you told that story, I was thinking, anybody out there in that same situation, that is a great strategy. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't. It was not, I was not okay with it, mostly because of the way it had been handled. I think if the company had handled it differently and said, hey, we know this is your last day, finish out your day, take your time packing up your things, like we're here to talk to you and support you and so on and so forth. But literally they walked out of the meeting, HR was waiting for them at their desk with a box and said, pack it up, give me your key and we're going to escort you out. And I was like, you're not being fired. What are you doing? So I just, I think other companies would have handled it in a much more tactful and respectful way. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have kind of called them the night before or anything like that. But because I had seen the way it was handled, I just didn't, I didn't, I decided to do it my own way. Well, it sounds like a Probably against the rules. And good God, if anyone from that era is listening, I'm so sorry I broke the rules. (laughs) (laughs) No, you should be glad. What you did was great. (laughs) Thank you. Let's pause here for a word about our sponsors. You want to know how good my sponsors are? I'll tell you. I got listeners who email me stories about them to put in the ads. 
I'd like to thank Steve Wickstrom in Utah for passing this one on. Really gets to the essence of Squarespace. Story goes back to 2012 when a storm surge from Hurricane Sandy took out power and flooded the basement levels of 75 Broad Street in New York City. Squarespace was keeping hundreds of thousands of websites up through backup generators at the top of that building. Problem was, the fuel was being pumped up to those generators from the basement, which was flooded. Once those pumps went down, it looked like hundreds of thousands of Squarespace websites might go down as well. Now listen to this. Squarespace had 25 employees relaying fuel up the steps of that building in a bucket brigade. They were passing on oil drums and five-gallon buckets of fuel up 17 floors to keep the generators going, the data center running, and all those websites functioning. There were employees from a couple other companies pitching in as well, but to me, the story tells you everything you need to know about the commitment you get from Squarespace. When you see a Squarespace website, you see beauty and creativity. But underneath, underneath that site is a commitment that goes deep. Squarespace. Another listener, Sam Beauty, emailed in with some commentary about the ads. As I've pointed out in the past, there are many people who love the storytelling in the ads, but other people have let me know that sometimes I can have a tendency to go a little over the top. Sam said, Cal, keep doing what you're doing. He told me that he passed on one of the stories in my ads to his girlfriend and even replayed it for her. Made my day. You know what I'm going to do this week? In this zip recruiter spot, I'm going to pass on some hiring advice. People know they get great candidates from ZipRecruiter, but afterward, they still got to figure out which ones to hire. Now, a lot of people ask ZipRecruiter's CEO, Ian Siegel, for the best questions to ask during hiring interviews. All of them will be happy to hear Shabnam's hiring process. So thanks, ZipRecruiter, for allowing me to pass this on. It'll be coming your way soon. What was it like to leave that setting Mm-hmm. and then come into Soul Pancake as it's just forming? Um, it was it was rejuvenating. It really was. Um, here was something I genuinely believed in. I believed in the mission of it. I was helping to build it from scratch. We were sitting on the floor in my living room mapping out strategy. I mean, it was all hours. It was all consuming. It was high energy. It was, we were concerned about every aspect of it. We cared about every aspect of it. And that energy is something intangible that really only entrepreneurs understand, like that that feeling of like, I'm starting something and I'm going to put all my energy into it and I see it and I believe in it and I just know that it can affect people. That energy is something that I wouldn't trade. I loved it. I loved it. The early days were a lot of fun. Did you see it as journalism back then or were you off? Did you understand that you were (laughs) taking a dive into a different place? No, I think at the time I definitely still had my journalism hat on. So there were a lot of times where I'd be like, did we fact check this? This needs to be this way. You know, like how many people have we talked to for the, right? So I definitely had my journalism hat a lot of times on, but I had to, I mean, I very quickly within the first kind of year of us being up and running learned that what we were doing was more art than, than journalism and art has nuances and art has, um, art does manipulate emotion. And so I had to find a way to take off my journalism hat and keep the parts of it that made me a good storyteller, 
but get rid of the parts that uh, put me into rigid of a box for us to create art. Wow, that sounds so familiar. It's exactly what I'm going through. <laughs> and it's it's hard because it's almost like you have weights on you mm-hmm. that you've got to just shed yep. in order to, to move ahead. Yeah. And so it took you about a year to do that. Yeah. And then once you get to that place, you're free? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I don't consider myself a journalist anymore. You know, I think I would- Like you're, I'm looking at a CEO. I'm (laughs) looking at you in front of the forest. I'm seeing a CEO. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely don't consider myself a journalist anymore. I took that hat off a while ago. I still consider myself a storyteller. I think to lead, to set a vision for a company, to get employees to buy into it, you have to be a good storyteller. I think the best leaders are very good storytellers. Um, so I still have my storytelling hat on, but I've also now put on a business hat, um, for lack of a better word, um, to make sure that I can run a company. So what happens? An, an idea is conceived for a kid president. Another, you find out of about a teenager who's got cancer and his days are counting yes. down. Do you realize, like, does the storyteller inside you realize, wow, this, this is gold? Um, you know, it's funny. It's yes. Fundamentally, yes. I think uh, I have, I pride myself on hiring people with good gut instincts. Um, and I think gut instincts matter a lot when you're creating content and when you're telling stories. You need to feel it in your gut that something is good. Um, now, that being said, I've been wrong countless times. I have seen something that I've thought, oh my God, this is amazing. It moves me, my heart, my soul, I'm wrenched. And then we'll put it out and it gets 25,000 views. And I'm like, what? How does this not have millions? So I, it's not that your gut can't be wrong, but I still believe that in most cases, trusting your gut matters. And the reality is that we spend a lot of time getting notes and feedback and notes from clients and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's not about one line that is said, one shot that is used. It's about how a piece of content makes you feel. And that is not something that there is a formula for. That is something you feel. You feel it in your gut. You feel it in your heart. You feel it. And how a a piece of content makes you feel is the ultimate, I think, test of whether it will perform well or not. Is it easy to work with brands to create content that both of you are going to have that sense of purpose in? We've figured it out. I think it was definitely challenging at the beginning because here we are a mission-based company. We've got this double bottom line. We want to create content that inspires conversation and connects humans and inspires people. And yet, you know, we've got brands coming that say, oh, but we want you to talk about our products and our services. And that those two things didn't really align. And I think what we've now learned in doing kind of several years of branded content is that you have to find where your messages overlap. And that's where you can create the best content. So it's not about a specific product or service. It's about the underlying human need that the product or service is fulfilling. And that is what we try to tell the story of. Because that fundamental underlying human need is probably pretty universal. And that's how we try to find the the unity between the brands that we work with. Was there one example of that where you saw, there it is. (laughs) Well, the story I always tell is of a video we did called Kitten Therapy. Um, So this was actually uh, Purina came to us and said, we have a line of kitty litter, tidy cats, and we want to create content. We love what you guys do, and we'd love to make something with you. And of course, here we are, a company that trades in joy and tries to inspire people. And we're looking at a kitty litter brief and we're like, what on earth? How do we even match those two things up? And so what we did was we actually sat with the clients and just kind of went through, okay, what exactly are you trying to say? What is it about kitty litter cats? What is it about cats really (laughs) that you guys are trying to hone in on? What's the underlying like ethos of the brand? And what we got to was that the brand said, listen, all everything we're creating in the cat space is around this idea that a cat, your cat is a source of stress relief. And particularly for women between the ages of 25 and 40 who have like one, maybe two cats, they're not like, you know, eight, eight cats cat lady. They are literally like one or two pets at home and they see their cats as a source of stress relief. And, you know, kitty litter, like tidy cats essentially makes this, the 
the joy of having the cat easier, right? It makes it easier to have their joy and stress relief in your life. And so this idea of your cat as a source of stress relief, we totally got because that's superhuman. Animals bring something out in us as humans. Like we see animals and it brings out softness in us and compassion in us in a way that no other creatures do. We don't even have compassion for humans the way we do for animals. And so um, so we said there's something really powerful in that. And so what we ended up creating was a giant box on a street that basically said, if you're stressed, step in here. And when people went in, they were given a guided meditation that had them listening to the purring of kittens. And then when they opened their <laughs> eyes, we actually released kittens into the box. And so they were able to play with kittens for a little bit. And the video performed insanely well. And what we found is that women between 25 and 40 were the ones watching that video, sharing it. And it really spoke to this idea of cats as a source of stress relief. And so Tidy Cats was super thrilled with it and the performance of it. And we were able to find that common messaging. So it wasn't about the specific product. It was about what is the underlying human thing that the brand was trying to convey, which is that animals can be a source of stress relief. And that was something we felt was super human, super relatable. And so we were able to kind of marry that in the, in the video. But it sounds like it was the use of interviewing that got deep to that point. <laughs> yes, I have a, I cannot take credit for all of these things at all. I have an amazing, brilliant, smart team who finds the right talent and digs into the things that the brand wants and knows what's important to Soul Pancake and is able to pull out of the brands what we can get from them. They they know what the parameters are that we play in and they're able to work within that. So I cannot take the credit. I have an amazing team that's able to do that. <laughs> what are the parameters that you play in? Um, well, I guess it depends on what we're talking about. Like if we're talking about the culture of the office, you know, we want the culture of the office to be joyful, to be creative, to be an honest and transparent workplace. Um, if we're talking about how we work with brands, we want to have some kind of message alignment. We want to make sure that we've vetted the brand to feel like they'd be a good partner, that we're getting in business with someone that we feel like is transparent as well about kind of who they are and what they stand for. So there's a lot of parameters that we look at, but it's always about how can we find the joyful, inspiring, positive, human story in what we're doing. Was it easier to be that way during the Obama presidency than the Trump presidency? Um, I wish everybody could have seen your face <laughs> when I asked that question. There was I'm this, not going to get into politics. No, I don't want you to I'm go into politics. I, I don't have to get into politics. No. I'm talking about joy, yeah. the state of joy. No, no, no. I actually think what we're doing now is even more important now than it was during the Obama presidency. I think that during the Obama presidency, what we were doing did resonate with people. Um, we definitely had like huge viral moments during that time. Kid, um, president. kid president met Obama. Like we definitely tapped into something. We were first to market, I think, in this inspiring positive content space. So I definitely think we tapped into something. Right now, I think there's a lot of challenges in the world. And I think Trump's presidency brought to light a lot of the difficulties, the the clashes that we have in our country. And I think as a result, what we do and the joy we're trying to spread is even more important right now. Because I think it's in light of the challenges, in light of the difficult times, finding the light in the darkness, finding the joy is the hardest thing to do. And if we can move the needle even a little bit on helping people do that, then I feel like we're, we're still doing the good work. So... A lot of times I find myself in place and people come to me and ask about telling stories. Mm -hmm. how, how can they do it? How do they figure out places to, to put it? Because it's, sure. it's a, even though you got the web and so many options, it's not like it was back in the day, or at least when I started, where you knew what the magazines were, you knew just watching their template. Mm -hmm. Okay, I I have this story. I could fit it in those pages in that magazine because those pages are dedicated to yep. it. It seemed like people are very confused now. And if they have to go out on their own, <laughs> they may need to partner with a brand in order to get the funding to do what they do. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend to somebody in that situation? They want to tell stories. Mm -hmm. and they need financing, and the brands are a great way to do that. Yeah. How do you make those connections, and how do you think in terms of making those partnerships? Well, I'm going to answer your question in a couple ways. 
So first of all, I think that we're actually in a great uh, time for creators and storytellers to have direct access to the vehicles to tell stories. You know, I think that we've been able to, through the social platforms, because of YouTube, because of Facebook, because of iPhones, the cost and the hurdles and the barriers to entry for getting stories made and out there significantly reduced. I mean, if you think about it, 30 years ago, if you wanted to make content, you had to go to a television network or make a film and get massive financing. They were really only investing in studios. If you were an individual creator, where could you go? There was no place for you to go. I think that we've democratized the ability to create stories right now. So I actually think it's an amazing time to be an individual creator because you have with a laptop and an iPhone and a decent microphone, you can basically make content pretty easily and get it distributed without any barriers. Now, getting that content seen, getting it to break through, finding funding to offset what you want to do, those are other challenges. But actually being a storyteller and a creator, I think the the hurdles are significantly lower now. Um, The second thing I'll say is that um, the brands will come if your craft and your art is where it needs to be. So I think oftentimes people think they're going to be an amazing creator and storyteller. And so they start, which is great. You have to start. If you're not writing, if you're not filming, if you're not producing something, if you're not making music, then you're not actually engaged in in your art and you're not improving it. Um, But we have found this. We'll make videos. And then two years later, we'll look back on them and be like, wow, those were kind of crappy. And then we'll look (laughs) at the videos we're making now and think those are amazing. And then in two years, we look back and say, my God, we've gotten so much better than we were two years ago. Even we are improving every single day in terms of the quality of our craft. And so if you invest the time in just making stuff, just make it over and over, make it, put it out there, like take the feedback, take the criticism, learn from the mistakes you made, keep making, keep producing, keep putting it out there. Your craft will get better. Your storytelling abilities will get better. Audience will grow. And that's when the brands come. I often tell my team that we should strive not to be viral, but to be a virus. And what I mean by that- What do you mean by that? What do I mean by that? (laughs) Um, And what I mean by that is when uh, I'm making hand gestures for those of you who uh, cannot see, which is everyone. Um, But essentially when you uh, invest in trying to make a viral moment, you have no audience beforehand. You have no viewerships beforehand. So you're, if you look at the graph, you're flat, right? You're a flat line. And then you invest all your time and energy in this viral moment and hopefully it breaks through. And so you have this big boost. And then where do those people go? They are on to the next thing that's of interest to them. And you drop right back down to where you were before. Whereas if you invest in being a virus, you make content consistently, you have that steady drumbeat of content, you'll grow. Your line will not be flat. It'll have a slow curve, a slow curve up. And when you inevitably have something that does break through naturally, that resonates with people, that goes viral, when people say, oh, what else do they have? It's not a blank slate. When you drop, and that that drop is inevitable, it always comes, you're at a higher level than you were before. So being sticky, having regular consistent content, beating that steady drum gives you a base that can grow so those viral moments propel you to the next level. And that, that will also bring attention, dollars, brands. Because if you're constantly investing in making something perfect for that one viral moment, you're never going to break through. You have to create a steady drumbeat and a sticky environment for people to fall into once you have that breakthrough moment. You know, there's a part of me, I I love that. (laughs) Absolutely love it. And there's a part of me though, that as a writer have, I I know there have been times where I've just clung to stuff. Mm -hmm. Best story I ever wrote took me 10 years until it was ready. Mm -hmm. And some part of me listening to you says, you, you just got to let go. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you let go, then you're, you're not really putting out something that may be a masterpiece if you put it out a year later. Sure. And, uh, and I think you have to be aware of the medium, right? If you're working on a film and you're investing tens of millions of dollars in it, 
you probably want to take two, three years to make sure it's right, that you've got the right cast, that you're making sure you're opening on the right box office weekend. There's a lot more elements and a lot more money at stake, right, with an opportunity like that. If you're making daily video content like we are, I don't have time. (laughs) I don't, we don't have time to worry and be precious about a 10 second segment within a five minute video when the very next day we're posting another one. And that's because the medium we're playing in is social where every single day there's a new video uploaded to YouTube every 0.001 second. That's a thousand videos per second uploaded to YouTube. The volume of the noise is insane. You can't be precious when you're putting up content in that space. You want it to be good and you want it to be 85% of the way there. But if you're nitpicking over a 10 second clip or one line, you're missing the bigger picture, which is that you got to have the steady drumbeat of content. Man, that is great advice for me. (laughs) Thank you. What has been the hardest thing for you as you progress? Because I'm I'm literally seeing the steps you're taking from having to go into the bathroom to chase down Lindsay Lohan to going back to God, Socrates. This is going to be the story that follows me all my life. <laughs> no, but you can actually, I can see you going up to step by step by step by step. Now you're an executive. And well, that sounds boring. Right. Uh, oh, what should I what should I call you? What should I call no, you? No, no, that's fine. That's no, fine. is there a way you like to see yourself? Uh, no. I on, honestly, I joke that I'm just here to watch everything get done. So I don't, I don't, I don't even know introduce myself as a CEO when I'm in meetings. I just say I just watch everyone else get everything done. <laughs> so you're back to being the kid while the play is going on, Basically. and then just saying, no, 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 you can't stand over there. I um I think I'm the chief decision maker. Okay. That's that's really kind of what I am. So um I have a I have a philosophy about decision making in general that you know 90% of decisions just need to be made. They're not the important ones. Only 10% of the decisions are the important ones, the ones that really matter and your job as an executive is to uh, is to know which ones are the important ten percent and and nail the ten percent nail the ten percent and because the other ninety percent doesn't matter doesn't matter they can either be undone or it's almost irrelevant in the grand scheme they just need to be made so I often find that I'm the chief decision maker being the one to say cool we're gonna make that decision here just do it and if we have to change course we change course. But it's the ones that are the important decisions that I will spend the most time on. What's the hardest thing as your job has progressed? Is there something that it took you a while to really get your hands around? Uh, So up until two years ago, I'd say, um, I was still heavily involved in the content. I would definitely review all the pitches and be part of the green light committee. And I would watch and give notes on, you know, pilots and such. Um, And I made an intentional decision two years ago to stop doing that, um, to basically say, I will watch everything, but I am not going to give notes anymore. And I am not going to review all the creative anymore. It is up to you guys to do that. And if you want me to, if there's something that you guys need a tiebreaker on or you guys can't decide on something, then bring it to me and I'll give you my thoughts. Or unless I feel super strongly about something, I watch something and I'm like, there's absolutely no way we can put this out. This is terrible, right? So unless I viscerally feel strongly about something, which is rare, or uh, you guys need me to make a decision, that's the only time you're going to hear from me on content. And part of that was because I needed to empower the team to be able to take the reins of the mission and the aesthetic and the content and make it their own um, and come up with things that I wouldn't be able to come up with on how to push our content into different spaces. Um, And the other part of it was I needed to free my brain up to think about the future of the company because we had hit a point where our growth was awesome, but I needed a partner to be able to scale us to the next level, which is where we ended up um, actually doing a sale to participant media. And what did that bring? Because that sounds like it's a whole new 
game. Yeah. So we were acquired about a year and a half ago by Participant, and we're essentially the standalone digital division of Participant Media, which is a great, prolific um, film and documentary company. They create entertainment that inspires social change. So very similar and aligned mission to our content to inspire and lift around, uplift around human connection. So the mission alignment was fantastic. So we did this acquisition a year and a half ago, and you know the first few months were really about just integrating our operations, especially on the back end with accounting and HR and all those fun things, all those so fun things. now you're in things. charge of HR. No, no, no. no. We, we integrated our <laughs> HR and business and oh, things I like that into participants. I thought you had a big say into HR, so no, if no, anyone no, no, has no. to get laid off, it's going to be done no, nicely. No, 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 no. Um, I, uh, I definitely work with HR, but it's participants. <laughs> HR and legal and uh, accounting were all able to do absorb you, us. Do you like and that? that uh, it, no, it was great. It was actually wonderful to be able to plug into a larger kind of machine for that back office support because it actually took a lot off of my plate as the kind of manager of a smaller team um, to be able to uh, have that delegated to existing teams and staffs. Um, and so once we got through kind of the integration, the past year has really been about helping to invest and position Soul Pancake for future kind of growth and scaling. So participant, we've been very lucky. They have invested in growing our content output. We're going to hit you know, more than 40 hours of short form digital daily content this year. Um, they've invested in us hiring staff and growing and expanding our team. We tripled our sales team uh, last fall. So they're really kind of helping to invest in kind of that future growth, which is really what I wanted. I wanted a partner to help us think about the next chapter. Is it just as exciting to grow a sales staff three times as it is to create a great piece of content? It's exciting in a different way. Um, I think telling a single story, you can get your hands dirty a little bit and you can get into it a little bit and you can connect with the people and you have a very clear finished product and you can see how people react to it and whether they engage with it. And it's a very tactile, concrete thing. Um, running a business is very different. It's got people and personalities and ups and downs, and you have to think about vision. You have to think about financials. You have to think about the human side of, of the business. So there's just a lot more nuances and there's not a concrete specific outcome of it. It's more of a lovely watercolor tapestry that you're trying to make sense of every day. And so from a daily challenge, it's super exciting because it's constantly new problems and new puzzles to have to solve. Do you find that because you were a journalist and can interview that it really helps you when you hire people? <laughs> um, I have a, uh, I have an interesting hiring process. I'm sure my staff would say, well, it was definitely different. How do you um, do it? Uh, well, I mean, we, I generally, there's three rounds to, um, uh, hiring here. Um, there's usually a first round that's kind of just an initial phone call talking through the person's background, who they are, um, getting to understand their expectations around the role, what they're looking for. Um, there's always a second round, um, that's in person, um, where it's kind of a little bit of a deeper dive. The first conversation is usually fast, 20 minutes. Um, the second conversation is a deeper dive into who they are. We want to see examples of their work. We want to talk to them about about, you know, their their history, who they are as a person, their interests outside of work. And then the third round is where I actually give people a homework assignment. Um, so once I've whittled it down to my three to five finalists for a role, um, I give people a homework assignment. One part of the homework assignment is related to the specific role they'll be doing. The other part of the homework assignment is actually a culture fit exercise. Um, so I... How does that... How would I, how would I see that? Uh well, essentially, then people come in and they basically do the homework. Um, and oh, so they're I, they, actually working with people in the company. No, no, no. I want to see their thought process. That's why I give oh, homework right. assignments. So I give homework assignments to see thought process. Okay. I want to see how you think about things. I want to see how you communicate your ideas. I want to see how you present your ideas. I want to see if I ask you questions on the fly, how you respond to them. Can you think on your feet? Can you, um, you know, be self-startery in that sense? And so part one of the homework is always specific to their role. So for example, if it's a marketing role, um, you, I would essentially give a, a response, a, an assignment of here is a series that we have coming out in three months. And I want you to put together a marketing strategy for that. Walk me through what you're going to do in terms of, you know, organic uh, promotion, what you're going to do in terms of collaborations, what you would do in terms of paid, here's your budget, 
and tell me who you're going to target, why, what's the messaging, build me a marketing strategy for this piece of content. Now, it's usually a piece of content that we've already put out because I'm not trying to make people do work that is not- I was just going to say, yeah. what a way to get great ideas. Yeah. So we, it's usually on a piece of content that we've already put out, but I'll give them three options and say, pick one and build a marketing plan for it. And then the second part of the homework assignment is a culture fit exercise. And genuinely, generally what I do is there's kind of a few parts to it. There's part one, which is pitch me on Soul Pancake. I want you to pitch me on who Soul Pancake is. You've heard me talk about it. I want you to pitch me on Soul Pan- on what Soul Pancake is because it's really interesting to see what people pick up on, what resonates with them, how they define the company. Do they understand everything I've tried to convey to them about who we are? So I want them to pitch the company to me. I want them to um, identify a handful of things that make them a tastemaker. So I basically ask them to show me the things that they care about. Um, that make them interesting and different as a human. And you really get insight into people's personalities. And because culture is so important for us, I want to know that these are people who have passions and who care. Because I believe that if you have passions outside of work, you'll generally tend to have a lot of passion in your work as well. Um, and uh, and then there's always kind of an activity component as well. So there's I, I definitely do a culture fit exercise as part of the homework that I give uh, potential employees. I'm, and I've required um, all my staff when they do their hiring to include the homework component of the process because it's super important to me. <laughs> That's phenomenal. It's, Who knows if it if it works? I think it works. You know, but... everybody that I met is smiling and happy and helping me out. So well, good. Then then I I did my job. They are they all are a good culture fit. <laughs> so. Let's wrap it up with a word you mentioned before. Okay. Ambition. <laughs> okay. What what is your what do you amb- what do your ambitions tell you? Uh, what direction do they send you in the future? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Um so it's funny, I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, how long am I going to be at Soul Pancake and what's going to be next for me? Um, and right now I'm looking at it like I've got the luxury of time. I still really love what I do here. I still feel like I've got some work to do here. And I I do believe in our mission and who we are. And I want to make sure that I can achieve some of the things that I still want us to achieve. Um, and so I'm looking that like the, looking at that as the luxury of time to figure out what comes afterwards. Um, I belong to a fellowship, uh, the Henry Crown Fellowship, which is a uh, part of the Aspen Institute. So it's a leadership uh, seminars, a series of leadership seminars. And what they focus on is really taking leaders uh, and helping them um, figure out their legacies and really fundamentally helping them move in their thinking from thinking about what is success to what is significance. And that's really kind of the point that I feel like I'm at in my trajectory, my ambition cycle. I don't even you know what so it's young. called. And now you're, 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 you're <laughs> um, wondering about your legacy and your significance. Well, but I think it's one of those things that I think historically I have seen an opportunity and I've jumped at it, or I've seen a job that I've really thought would be awesome and I've jumped at it, or an opportunity has presented itself and I've dived into it. And I've never thought long-term about kind of what's next. And someone, one of my good friends and mentors told me recently, um, well, so, you know, you're, you're coming up on 40 and, you know, for you, that means that you'll probably have four to five jobs left in your career. When you start out in your early twenties, you can change your career several times. And like, that's kind of the path you take. But once you get to a certain age, there's really four or five jobs left in your career. If you think about your career as a whole thing. And And so you've really got to think about not necessarily your next step, but what do you want your last step to be and work backwards from that. Reverse engineering. Reverse engineering a little bit. And and so I'm trying to think about my career from, okay, where do I want to be as my, you know, when I'm 70 and it's my last job? Like what is what is that job that I want to have? And how do I move from I think I'm relatively successful. I wouldn't say that I'm like, I'm not, I'm I'm 
You're doing you pretty know. good. You're I'm here in the birch forest. I'm here in my forest birch forest in Denmark. Denmark. Um, no, I uh, I think I'm relatively successful for what our company is and what we were able to build. However, how do I move that to creating true significance and defining what I want my final kind of role to be? And I am literally looking at the next few years as the luxury of time to help figure that out. And I promise this will be the last question. You've said that three <laughs> questions ago. No. Yeah. Shoot. What's the last question? The last, last question. Thinking that way in this time, this pivotal time for women, it seems like that to me. Does it make you think different? No. Doesn't? No. I'm. People are people. I think fundamentally at the end of the day, we're all humans. And our job, or at least my job right now at Soul Pancake, is to tell stories that help people see the humanity in other people. And I love what's happening right now. I think it's powerful and I think it's amazing. I also am very cognizant of the fact that all things have to have balance. Um, mm. You know, I have an amazing team. I'm very heavily skewed female and it's something I'm working on. I'm actively trying to create more gender balance at the company because I genuinely believe that things need to be balanced, that the world needs more balance. And I think that what's happening right now is bringing to light a lot of issues. But I think at the end of the day, we have to get to a place that what we see is the beautiful fabric of humanity and finding balance within that. And so that's that's how I'm trying to think about company, think about my future, think about my role in the world. That's how I'm trying to approach it. It's beautiful. I walk out of here knowing a lot more than when I walked in. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad and thank you so much for coming and spending time in my forest with me. And uh, it was lovely to meet you. Good luck on your journey to significance, but I think you already are. I appreciate that. Thank you. Cheers. Time to wrap it up. My takeaway from this episode is what Shabnam told me about being a chief decisions maker. Only 10% of the decisions really matter, she said. And it's your job to nail that 10%. That allows you to be more relaxed about the other 90% and more focused on the important 10. I encourage you to incorporate that into your life the best way you can. Now, as usual, a little time for some gratitude. want to thank Tim Ferriss for enabling me to start this podcast and pass on Shabnam's wisdom. want to thank Squarespace for its sponsorship. My website is powered by Squarespace, so go to squarespace.com, type in the offer code FUSSMAN, and get 10% off a new domain name or your own unique website. And ZipRecruiter, which gives you the best way to hire. All you got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, type in your job description, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within a single day. Can't do better than that because you'll be getting a free trial. Want to thank all my listeners around the world for sending in photos of where you listen to big questions. It makes me so happy to see the places near and far where we're connecting. Please keep sending them along. I look forward to connecting next week. Cheers.